down the slope past the Minotaur, and our pilgrim has more questions than he has answers. Unfortunately, he apparently can't even voice those questions. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we walk passage by passage through Dante's masterwork comedy. We're in Canto 12 of Inferno. We're at lines 31 through 48. If you don't know, we had been sitting up at the edge of the abyss of lower hell. We're getting used to the stink while Virgil mapped out hell for us. The pilgrim had a couple questions about that map. And then down over the edge they went at the opening of Canto 12. They came down a rock slide, a scree field, (laughs) lots of boulders everywhere. They went past the raging minotaur that bit itself. And now they've come almost to the bottom, pretty close to the bottom of this slope. And we pick it up right here with our pilgrim and Virgil. I went along in thought. And he said, Perhaps you're thinking about this rock slide, which is guarded by that bestial rage that I quenched just now. Okay, so I want you to know that the other time I descended this far into lower hell, these rocks had not yet cascaded down. But for sure, if I've got this figured out right, just before that one came down and lifted out of this the great booty of the highest circle, The whole lot of this filthy, deep valley trembled so much that I thought the universe felt the love by which some believe the world has been morphed into chaos. It was right then when these old rocks here and around us fell into pieces. But set your eyes on what's below, for we're approaching the river of blood in which are boiled the ones who through violence have hurt others. Virgil's explanation, his backstory. This passage has several little knots inside of it and a couple new things that I want to introduce to this podcast. So let's just take it off uh, piece by piece, (laughs) shaving it away until we get to the meat of the matter. I went along in thought. One of the most curious things of Canto 12 is the Pilgrim Dante's silence. During this canto, the Pilgrim will say nothing. The poet However, in the next episode of this podcast, we'll say something right out of the text, directly right at us. But the pilgrim to this entire canto is silent. Interesting why that has to be. And any suppositions that we make, any interpretive questions that we might raise about the pilgrim silence are all going to be guesses. There are all going to be attempts, theories, theses that we can try out about why the pilgrim is silent. But right now, I just want to note that the pilgrim is indeed silent throughout this entire canto. Virgil does all the talking. Virgil did a lot of the talking in Canto 11. Our pilgrim did a lot of the talking in Canto 10 with Ferranata and Cavalcante. So we seem to be alternating back and forth between who's in the lead. And this is definitely a Virgilian canto. And Virgil says, perhaps you're thinking about this rock slide, which is guarded by that bestial rage that I quenched just now. I just want to stop and just talk about this for a second. The rock slide. If you'll notice, the details are so, what shall I say, visualized, so present all throughout comedy. Even when we get up to Paradiso, the details will be first and foremost. And I think that's very important that Virgil doesn't really know why the pilgrim is silent. 
But Virgil makes an assumption that the pilgrim is silent because of the physical landscape, the details around them. It doesn't say that. The pilgrim's walking along in silence. Maybe he's maybe he's thinking about the theology of the Minotaur, or maybe he's thinking as we did whether the Minotaur is a symbol or an allegory, or maybe he's confused a bit again still about the map of hell and how the violent fit in. It doesn't say why he's in thought. Virgil intuits it, and Virgil is often right about what the pilgrim is thinking at any given moment. But still, Virgil's assumption is about the physical landscape. And this brings us to this question of the physical landscape in comedy. I want to read you a passage from Eric Auerbach's unbelievably great work, Dante, Poet of the Secular World, a piece of writing that Auerbach did in the early part of the 20th century before he wrote his grand thesis of literary studies, Mimesis. But this is uh, this is uh, Dante, Poet of the Secular World. This is translation by Michael Deirda. And this is a bit about why Dante stands out for Auerbach. And Auerbach's claim, well, before I get to the quote, let me just say, Auerbach's claim is that the extreme particularity of the comedy is what makes it stand out. And what he means by that is the absolute insistence on physical small details. Dante insists, Auerbach says, on being followed into the extreme particularity of the real situation that he conjures up. There's all kinds of problems there with real and conjure. But okay, let's just stop though and think about it for a minute. What Auerbach's claim is, is that the reason Dante's poetics work in the comedy is because Dante is always driving toward extreme particularities like this rock slide. Let me read on from Auerbach. The truth is rather that the earlier poets, and here he means the earlier troubadour poets from Provence, as well as the early Italian poets of the new style. The truth is that the earlier poets tend to branch outward from their experience to adduce through association or logical connections everything that is in any way related to the experience or likely to explain or ornament it metaphorically. Whereas Dante holds firmly to his concrete point of departure and excludes everything else, whether alien, related, or similar. He never spreads himself thin. He digs down. That's where we are, the dig down. And I don't just mean the descent into hell. I mean the dig down into particularities. And whether Virgil has guessed our pilgrim's quandary right or not, this is certainly the quandary of the comedy. The unbelievably graphic and realistic detail that absolutely overwhelms, that absolutely surrounds, that grounds, that that is the foundation of this work that is a vision of the afterlife. Think about it. You could write this in any number of ways. You could write this with a bunch of, I don't know, shades floating around in an empty cave underground. You don't have to get this detailed, this into the absolute specifics, the extreme particularities of the situation. And yet Auerbach's claim is that this is what makes Dante great. And Virgil seems to be leading us further into those theories of poetry into those poetics by focusing on the rock slide. Last time in the last episode, I made a big deal about hell lying in ruins. And I said, there's a way in which travelers in Dante's day came across Alexandria and other places, Constantinople, that were in ruins because of the early Christian crusades against the classical world from, let's say, about 200 common era to about 500 common era. 
And uh, a couple of people asked me about that. And I just want to insert here that if you'd like to know more about that, Look up Catherine Nixie's book, The Darkening Age. That book is a is a story of how Christians essentially assaulted and did in the classical world. What I like about Nixie's work is it's a good counter argument to the, the all those other works about how Irish monks saved Western civilization and monks in various monasteries kept all these texts. Okay, the, and that's great, and the, there is truth in that too. It's almost as if there's these two poles. There, there is the salvation of the Western tradition in certain monasteries, and there's also the destruction of the classical world by Christian zealots in early common era. And if you want to know more about that, I'd really suggest reading Nixie's book as a good counterbalance to all those books about how the Irish saved civilization. That's a ways from our passage and its extreme particularity of a rock slide, so let's just pass on and see what happens next. Okay, Virgil says, so I want you to know that the other time, so what is important here is that this is more of Virgil's backstory. We're getting more of this whole notion that Virgil has a life outside of comedy, that he has a life even in the afterlife outside of comedy. We know back in Canto 9 that Virgil has been down here before, that Erichtho, remember that whole discussion about Erichtho from Lucan's Pharsalia, that Erichtho had conjured him and sent him down to the bottom of hell to retrieve a soul. There is a bit of a problem here, if you just think about it for a moment, that once Virgil was conjured to the bottom of hell by an evil, or at least not good spirit, Erichtho, now he's being conjured or driven to the bottom of hell by a good presence, Beatrice. Both sides of that coin may cause a little bit of a fracture in Virgil's character. I think not. If you remember that previous episode, I tried to talk about how Erichtho may be a, there may be a providential rewriting of the Erichtho story in comedy. If you're just dropping into this episode, none of that will make any sense. You go back to the episodes in Canto 9 and it will start to make sense about Erichtho. But what's happening here is we have a reference and it's a linking back to Canto 9. And you realize just in the last episode of this podcast, we just passed another reference to Theseus. So somehow, Canto 9 and Canto 12 are being linked. We're being shown references to Theseus, references to Virgil's trek to the bottom in both places, inside and outside the walls of Dis. There, Virgil was stopped by the Christian demons. Here, he's allowed to get past the classical Minotaur. You might have thought when we got to the walls of Dis, uh, we finally passed out of the classical world and into the Christian world, and thus Virgil is blocked. You might have thought that, but that just meant you hadn't read enough, because now we're back on Virgil's home turf. And so Virgil just going to tell us more about this story. I wanted you to know that I descended this far in Lower Hell and these rocks had not yet cascaded down. So what we know is that the last time Virgil came this way, it didn't look like this. It wasn't in ruins. And now comes the explanation for the ruins. Virgil says, but for sure, if I figured this out right and notice the hedging, just before that one came down and lifted out of this the great booty of the highest circle, the whole lot of this filthy deep valley trembled so much that I thought the universe felt the love by which some believe the world has often morphed into chaos. So much 
to unpack here. So let's take it one bit at a time. First up, the earthquake. So there has been an earthquake that the valley, and he's talking about the whole valley of hell, the deep abyss of the whole conical structure of Inferno, that it shook. And we know this from the Gospels. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew 27, 51, when Jesus dies on the cross, at that moment, there are earthquakes, rocks split, the veil of the temple is split, but that's not referenced here. But we know there are earthquakes at the moment that Jesus dies during his crucifixion. Virgil is connecting that to this moment, and we're getting this veiled hint of the crucifixion. And you'll notice that Virgil is here answering a question the pilgrim had previously. The pilgrim said, you know, in that last passage, that there's this giant rock slide, and I don't know whether it was because of an earthquake or because the terrain gave way. Well, here's the answer. It's an earthquake. So while the pilgrim didn't know in the previous passage in Canto 12, Virgil now fills it in and answers it. Well, here's the answer. There, the valley trembled. It was an earthquake. And we know, or maybe can know from the Gospels, you don't have to know, but we can know from the Gospels that there were earthquakes at the moment of Jesus' death. All of this is filling in background information. But what does Virgil say? Ah, that gets tougher. Virgil says, just before that one came down and lifted out of this the great booty of the highest circle. We are back to the Virgil of Cantos 1 and 4. We are back to the Virgil who can't name God or can't name Jesus. Notice right here, he's talking about the harrowing of hell. What's the great booty of the highest circle? The highest circle is limbo. Remember, it's got all of the philosophers in it. And don't forget, it had, before the harrowing of hell, all of the Old Testament types, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Isaiah, Ezekiel. And remember that story that Virgil told back in Canto 4. He talked about an inimical force and a battle, and he couldn't quite name what was going on. And we made a great deal of that back in Canto 4. We seem to be back to that Virgil. The problem is, just in the last Canto, Canto 11, Virgil was reasoning based on God, scholastically, and even saying the word God in Canto 11. There are many ways to look at this, but let's just hold for a minute and just look at what Virgil says before we try to figure out what is going on with the character of Virgil. So this figure came down and lifted out of Dis, and notice that now Virgil is describing all of Inferno as Dis, not just those walls of Dis in Canto 9 and beyond the city of Dis, but all of Inferno is Dis because Limbo is clearly part of it, lifted out of Dis, the great booty of the highest circle. The whole lot of this filthy deep valley trembled so much. And I just want to stop right there on the word filthy. Feda. This is something that I want to introduce to the podcast that we haven't talked about yet, but the word in the Florentine that gets used is feda. It is, and this is a very fancy word, a hapax legomenon. Hapax, H-A-P-A-X. You can just say it's a hapax. Hapax legomenon is a word that occurs only once in a work. It's, it's Greek term, but it means a word that is only used once. And feda, that I translated here filthy, is 
only used here in comedy, never again. Scholars make a great deal out of hapaxes. They make a great deal of when they occur, how they occur, why they're there, why is this word only used once? Believe it or not, there are entire dissertations written on how a word only occurs once in comedy. And here's one of them, feda. The reason this one's interesting is because it is a rare Latinization. It's a Latin word pulled up into Florentine by Dante. Interesting that right here, Virgil has to resort to a Latin word feda to explain this valley here he is trying to figure out who this one is that came down and pulled out the great booty out of the highest circle and he's 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 fumbling around for an answer and he reverts to classical language feda to latin in order to explain the valley. Now, it is the word filthy, but there are a lot of cruder words, a lot of cruder words that Dante could have used here rather than this rather highfalutin Latin word. It further deepens what's going on in this passage to point it out and to say this is the only time in all of comedy feta is ever used. So it stands out. It jumps out because A, it's only used once, and B, it's Latinized. Why is Virgil being so highfalutin? Well, maybe the answer lies in how he explains it. He says, The valley trims so much that I thought the universe felt the love by which some believe the world has often morphed into chaos. He's talking about Empedocles. Empedocles was a Greek philosopher about 490, 493, along in there before Common Era to about 432 before Common Era. Dante knows about Empedocles from Aristotle's Physics, where in Aristotle's Physics, book one, chapters four and five, and Aristotle is trying to explain how many people understood the universe to operate. Well, here's Empedocles' thought. Empedocles accepts that the that the matter and the world around us is made out of the four basic elements, that is water, air, fire, and earth. But Empedocles says that doesn't explain it all. And so there are two other basic elements to reality, love and chaos. And love, too much love, leads to chaos amongst all the other particles and by <laughs> by some reverse wildness too much chaos amongst all the other particles actually starts to develop a functionality of love and that chaos and love in balance and alternating between them keep the universe stable keep all the other elements in their place as far as the church is concerned this is heresy virgil is not a sure guide of theology this is strange because in the previous canto, Virgil was a sure guide. He knew exactly why God punished uh, the usurers at the lowest point of the violent. He'd had it all worked out scholastically and even spoke surely of God's design for Inferno. And yet here, Virgil falls into a pre-Christian thought. Empedocles, a Greek philosopher, long before Christ, long before even the whole of the quote-unquote Old Testament or the Tanakh was written. Virgil's quoting this old philosophy as an explanation, and yet you know what is what's strange about this? Well, Christ is sent into hell in Christian theology is an act of love. So although Virgil's got it wrong, and although he's spouting a heresy, yet at the same time, we would say that, well, that 
of that earthquake is that the world felt the love of the crucifixion inside a Christian context. Again, let me just remind you, I'm not preaching Christian theology. I'm trying to figure out why Virgil has this attitude and why he's vacillating and why he's partly right here, but he seems to be completely and fully Christian in other passages. Here's the whole problem in a nutshell. You can either say that the poet is using Virgil as a mouthpiece in Canto 11. You know, okay, the the poet needs to explain his schema of what's ahead in Inferno, and Virgil's standing there. He's as convenient a puppet as anybody. I'll just shove it in his mouth and make him tell it. And now we're back to the Virgil that we've known all along, the Virgil who doesn't really understand Christian theology really well, but is, and we're being told this repeatedly, is a sure guide to the landscape of Inferno. Virgil knows hell. He, How do I say this? Virgil knows the what of hell. He doesn't know the why of hell. Yet, in Canto 11, he did seem to know the why of hell. So you could say, uh, well, the poet needed a mouthpiece, blah, blah, blah. Or you could say there's slippage in Virgil's character, which I think is part of the truth for it. I have another answer for this, and it's a bit more of a complicated answer about Virgil's character. And that answer is... <laughs> I don't mean to be coy. Please forgive me. I need to save that answer until we meet Brunetto Latini in Canto 15. So I need to save my answer about Virgil's character until that. But here's the thing. And this is my point. Yes, there is slippage in Virgil's character, right and left. Part of it is because we're watching a poem in process in front of us. After all, Dante's on the run. After all, as I've told you, it's expensive to write. It's expensive to have the tools of writing. You can't just rewrite like you do on a computer now, cut and paste, this and that, take it here, take it there. No, none of that is possible. So in fact, you know, the, the poem, we shouldn't be surprised, is thinking itself out as it goes forward. It's developing its own structure. And we're starting to see that structure develop, but Virgil is the piece of the structure that keeps falling out. It's like you're building this beautiful building, this giant cathedral, and I don't know, this, this window, the rose window that is Virgil in one end of it, it just keeps falling out, or it keeps not settling, or you get it in there and it's crooked and you got to straighten it. Virgil's the problem. And while you might feel that I am dissing Dante's art, I am not. In fact, I'm saying that one of the things that's amazing is Dante is trying to figure Virgil out and we're watching it happen around us and hear Virgil spouting heresy, but it's kind of part true, but he was totally not a heretic in Canto 11 when he mapped out hell. All of that says to us that that rose window in that cathedral is constantly being shifted and straightened. You know, a lesser writer... A lesser writer, even if I, were, if I were writing this work, I'd get the rose window in there and I'd say, no, oh, it's crooked. Oh, well, what the hell? And just leave it there, right? Leave it crooked in the cathedral space. Not so much Dante. Dante is constantly moving it and adjusting it and trying to figure out exactly how he can get the right amount of light through it. Here, we seem to have fallen back to an old Virgil who doesn't quite understand theology, but we were being told loudly that Virgil does know the landscape of hell and in fact can even answer the pilgrim's quandary about whether this rock slide was caused by just a shift in the terrain or an actual earthquake. Sure guide to landscape, not so sure guide to theology, unless we need him to be, and then is a sure guide to theology. Virgil, always the hardest character in comedy. 
Virgil says, set your eyes on what's below. In other words, okay, we've gone on here about the rock slide, about my previous trip. I've developed more of my backstory for you. I've complicated my character for you. I've done all of that stuff. And now set your eyes on what's below. And I should just tell you that this passage in particular is one of the ones that the critics love to kick the most. When I said in a previous episode that Canto 12 came in for the most negative commentary of almost any Canto in Inferno, it's this passage particularly that is it. Uh, commentators right and left uh, say there's just too much here. Virgil talks too much. We don't need all this. All this is extraneous to comedy. It should be cut out. It's, Virgil is w- way too garrulous. He, he's getting out of his own depth. We don't need to see Virgil out of his depth. All of this kind of stuff is basically hanging on this passage. And when he says, but set your eyes on what's below, we're being told, see, what came before is just me talking. Now let's get back to the plot. I don't know. I think it's more important than that. Again, I think it's more important to watch Dante try to straighten that rose window over the course of time. Okay, but in any event, Virgil says, we're approaching the river of blood in which are boiled the ones who through violence have hurt others. In other words, this this boiling river of blood? Wow. So see, Virgil is a sure guide. Virgil knows what's next, and he even knows why what's next is there. The ones who through violence have hurt others. So he understands why they're there and he understands what hell is but then these finer theological points is heresy finer empedocles i don't think that's finer well i'm gonna give it to it these finer theological points just seem to be lost on him and notice river of blood it's not named interestingly it will be named but right now all we are is standing on the edge of a river boiling with blood that punishes those through violence who have hurt others. And in the next episode, we won't even get to the others because there are other beings surrounding this very river of boiling blood and they are about to make their appearance. So subscribe to this podcast and you won't miss them. They're up in the next episode. Like this podcast, I would appreciate a rating. I would appreciate a review. Drop down to the bottom of the Apple page and you can write a review there. And connect with me on all sorts of social media platforms on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can find me any place around. I'd be glad to talk more Dante with you and explain my reasoning here. And I'd love to hear your reasoning here about the passage and this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. And come back because, wow, this river of blood, wait till you see who's standing on its shores. Mm -hmm.